0: If you have your Bible with you, we'll be continuing our sermon series in the book of Daniel, and we are still in chapter 7. If you are able, would you please stand out of reverence for the Word of God? Last week, we looked at the first 14 verses of Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to be focusing now on verses 15 through 28, but for context we are going to read the entirety of the chapter for it is to be taken together. Again, that's Daniel chapter 7, and we're beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leper, four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. one that shall not be destroyed. This is the living and active word of the living and true God, piercing through bone, soul, and marrow. Please receive it as such and be seated. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, we're told that one day as Jesus was walking with his disciples going to the village of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks his disciples a question. Who do the people say that I am? To which the disciples responded, Well, some John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Then Jesus turns the question on them and asks, But who do you say that I am? To which Peter responds for all the disciples and says, You are the Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, we seemingly see the same incident happening where he's walking again to uh, this village and he asks his disciples this question. But in Matthew, we get a little bit more detail. In Matthew's account, Jesus says to them, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say That the Son of Man is. In this question of his identity, Jesus includes an allusion to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, by alluding to himself as the Son of Man. As he makes clear throughout his ministry, he identifies himself as this, as a title and a figure. And Jesus identifies himself in this way, saying, Who do they say that the Son of Man is? In Matthew, then, Peter responds and says, You are the Christ. And we get another added detail that Mark didn't have. The Son of the Living God. In Matthew, then, he gives the added detail that he is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. This is the way that throughout the Old Testament, God is described as the the Living God. And if you remember in Daniel, this is the way that Darius the Mede in chapter 6 described the God of Israel the living and true God. So in Matthew's account, he is deliberately making these kind of allusions to the Son of Man, who is the one who approaches the ancient days, who is the living and true God. What we saw last week is the one like a Son of Man in Daniel is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the living God, who upon conquering sin and death on the cross ascended on the clouds of heaven, and received all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is the one who will return again in the same manner on the clouds of glory. But that question which Jesus asked his disciples on the earth, who do people say that the Son of Man is? From his heavenly throne today, he asks us, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say that I am? We might answer this question in a similar way to the disciples in the first century. Some say a prophet, like Muhammad, a little lesser than him. Others say a mere man who was a good moral teacher, like the Buddha. Still, others say that he was a mythical figure made up by the first century church. But through his word, Jesus isn't just asking us what others say, Jesus asks us, who do you say that I am? Maybe you're here today, and you can honestly say that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of Man, who came, lived, and died, and was resurrected for his people. And if you say this, you're doing well. But the angel, or the devils believe this as well, and yet they shudder. What I want to emphasize here is it's not merely enough for us to know who Jesus is and what he has done. We need to be able to say that he is my savior who lived and died and rose again for me. Jesus Christ, you see, is not an abstract savior. Jesus Christ is a personal savior. He came to save his people made up of individuals who are known by the Father before the foundation of the world and given to His Son. We need to have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our God, as our Savior. Faith, it's been said, is made up of three parts. It's a knowledge of who Jesus is and what He has done. It's an assent to the facts that they are true and effectual. But the third part is the part that makes the difference of saving faith and that is trusting at this work that he did was for me and is effectual to bring salvation to me and all of those who trust in him. The Westminster Divines put it this way not just talking about faith but talking about saving faith. It says the principal acts of saving faith are accepting receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for justification sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. You see, what they're emphasizing is that we need to, when we hear the gospel preached, we need to accept it and receive it and trust in this as our hope for salvation, as the only hope to be delivered from this present evil age. With that being prefaced, what I want us to see through this passage of Daniel today is that who Jesus is and what he has done is for us and for our salvation, that by faith we become united with this glorious Son of Man who has ascended on high to the Ancient of Days. Namely, I want us to see Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who has crushed all the kingdoms of this earth, has conquered all His and our enemies, and received an eternal kingdom so that we might reign with Him by faith, even as we just sang, by union with Thee, that we reign together with Christ. And I want us to understand that reality and how that affects we live, how we live in the here and now, that even by faith we are united to the King of kings, and Lord of Lords. To come to this conclusion, we'll consider three points. The first is the four kingdoms, verses 15 through 18. Second, we'll look at the fourth kingdom, verses 19 through 22. And we'll look then last at the final kingdom, verses 23 through 28. Four, fourth, and final. Let's look at that first point. The four kingdoms. Chapter 7 as a whole contains one vision and its angelic interpretation. Because of its length and the richness of its content in and of itself and in the development of the rest of Scripture, last week we just focused on the first 14 verses, which I think is well worth doing. But we also, in doing that, drew on the rest of the chapter and its fulfillment in the New Testament in Christ. Now we look closer at the interpretation given in Daniel 7 itself. So Daniel states in verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Uh, the visions of his head, recall, were the, the sight of the four, four beasts arising out of the great sea, which succeeded each other, growing lesser in glory, but fiercer and more gory. From the fourth beast, which was different Then the others came a little horn who spoke boastful words. Yet in response to this, we read about how the Ancient of Days had this beast and his kingdom destroyed, yet the other beasts had their dominion taken away, but their lives prolonged for a season and a time. But the Ancient of Days gave to the one like a son of man who approached his throne on the clouds of glory He gave to him everlasting dominion and a kingdom which will not be destroyed. As we talked about last week, Daniel's dream parallels that of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, where he saw a statue representing four kingdoms, which were struck by a little stone, which destroyed the entire statue and became a great and everlasting kingdom of God. Similar to how Nebuchadnezzar's spirit was troubled, and he became alarmed from the visions of his head, both of the statue and his other dream of that great tree which got chopped down. So too, in this passage, it's interesting that Daniel himself, his spirit becomes troubled, and he was greatly alarmed by his visions of his head. Another parallel. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, though, who had to have the interpretation of his dream given to him by a Jewish exile, the Lord in his grace permits Daniel to approach the angel and his vision. So verse 16 states, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. While there are many similarities between Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and visions with Daniel's dreams and visions, here's a distinction. Nebuchadnezzar's dreams were merely passive and receptive. But the Lord in his mercy gave Daniel a receptive dream and also enabled him to interact in it. He did not have to go to another figure to give him the interpretation of this dream, a mere man, but he is able to approach the angel himself by the Lord's grace. And the angel responds to him in verses 17 through 18. These four beasts are, these beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Big emphasis there. Forever, forever, and ever. If you are one to highlight your Bible or put underlinings, this chapter is very complicated, right? Well, here is a two-sentence summary of everything this chapter wants to tell you. Mark down verses 17 through 18. Four kings shall arise, but in the end the saints of the Most High shall receive and possess the kingdom forever and ever. That's Daniel 7 in two sentences. Mark that down. You may have noticed that in this chapter and earlier chapters, sometimes the images of these visions are spoken of as kingdoms on one hand, but then sometimes it's an individual king. This is because a king at any given time, it's not a contradiction, a king at any given time represents his kingdom itself. So earlier in this chapter, we read that one like a son of man, a singular individual, received the kingdom, but here it says that the saints of the Most High receive it. It's an important point which we're going to come back to, but I just want you to take note of that um, now. So at this point, Daniel is well in his years, and he has had sufficient experience in interpreting dreams, right? And he has been an advisor to kings. Could he not have come up with a mere guess of the interpretation of the dream itself? Why does he go to the angel, especially with the similarities with the statue dream and all of that? Well, I think one reason is this, to emphasize the point which Daniel has made repeatedly to the kings before him and to us by extension, that it's not because of any great wisdom in Daniel himself or any great ability which he has of himself, but his ability to understand and interpret dreams and to read writing is a gift of God. He is a mere instrument who is receiving this and is working to speak to these pagan kings and to work to us. It's nothing intrinsic to Daniel's person that gives him the ability to know these dreams. He receives it from God, and as such, he goes to God's minister, the angel, to receive the interpretation of it. This teaches us something important. Neither you nor I have all the answers. We do not understand everything that's going on around us. We do not understand all the Bible. We do not understand all of our life in light of what Scripture teaches. Jesus Christ taught us that blessed are you, that you see and hear. This is not from yourself, but this has been given to you by your Father in heaven, for it has pleased him to reveal his mystery of the kingdom to little children. This calls for humility on our part. When we don't understand God's word, and we don't understand our lives in light of God's word, we need to humbly come before him and ask that he would open our eyes to understand the truth of his word and to transform our hearts with it. And this is a good moment for me to say that this is especially true of pastors. It's a weighty and blessed calling to be able to stand up here and say, thus says the Lord. But before that ever happens, each week I need to come to the Lord before I even study this section of Scripture and say, Lord, preach this text to my heart so that I might be able to faithfully communicate it to your people in a way which is edifying to them and glorifying to you. Pastors aren't gurus. We're instruments in the hands of the Lord God, and we must come before Him humbly to teach us his ways. We must ask for His Spirit to illumine our mind and our hearts. This is the only way to have an effectual ministry relying on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is only by the ministry of God's Spirit that we might behold the glory of Christ set forth to us in Holy Scripture. That is one principle that Daniel is teaching us through this action. But I think something else is going on here too. I think there's another reason that Daniel was alarmed and perplexed by this vision. I think in somewhat he could have pieced together from the prior revelation of God to Nebuchadnezzar about the statue and this vision of four beasts. He could have pieced together that this is talking about four kingdoms and about God's kingdom. But there's something that is perplexing him. There's something particular about this vision which is alarming to him, that has disturbed him. To his bones, which brings us to our second point. We have just considered four kingdoms. Now let us look at the fourth king. Thus far, Daniel has approached the angel in inquiry of his interpretation of his vision, and he has received a succinct summary. Again, four kingdoms will arise and fall, but the saints of the Most High will receive the eternal kingdom forever and ever. Now he seeks more detail, particularly regarding the fourth beast, which seems to be what has alarmed him the most. He says in verse 19, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest and exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Here we see Daniel's focus on the fourth beast as the main source of his alarm. He calls it exceedingly terrifying. In asking for detail, he himself gives us more detail of what he saw in his vision, adding that not only did it have iron teeth, but had claws like bronze, representing its ability to stamp, to crush, and to devour its enemies. This is an important verse for considering the identity of this kingdom. As Sam Storms has pointed out, this kingdom is called different from all those who have gone before it. This was certainly true of the Greek kingdom. Remember, as Alexander spread his kingdom throughout all the earth, he Hellenized it, making all these different ancient Near Eastern places and all these places, making them learn the Greek language and bringing very different customs to these people. It fits well with the Greek kingdom. Uh, the Roman kingdom was actually not so different from the Hellenized world, the Greeks. So that's one point possibly for that. Moreover, Storms points out that whereas Alexander's army was literally unstoppable, and it did in fact conquer Babylonia, Media, and Medio Persia, their kingdoms and their territories, Rome was actually halted at Parthia, and it never actually occupied these lands of Babylon, Media, and media persia It didn't reach that far. These observations, while not being definitive, I do think they lend weight to the view that the fourth beast is Greek, but you can have your own opinion on that. In verse 20, Daniel continues to describe this exceedingly terrifying beast, saying, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn." that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Again, those who see this fourth kingdom as Rome, whether dispensationalists or reformed, admit that we have no historical record of a situation like this in Rome with having ten kings or kingdoms, and therefore they place this fulfillment in the future. Reformed interpreters would see this, would tend to see these ten kingdoms as representing all hostile kingdoms which arise after the ascension of Christ between the, the first coming and the second coming of Christ and somehow being connected with Rome, rather, whether in territory or in the spirit of Rome. That's how the Reformed uh, some would take it. But dispensationalists look for an actual revival of a Roman empire of sorts which will have ten literal Roman kings who give their power to the Antichrist, um, the beast. Again, Storms provides an alternative view. If the fourth kingdom is Greece, then the three horns which are said to have fallen before the other may refer to Antiochus Epiphanes' father who had victory over Cappadocia, Armenia, and Parthia which led the way to the kingdom being established under Antiochus Epiphanes, who we're going to get to know well in chapter 8. On this view, then, the ten horns may refer to the ten independent states which arose late in the 3rd century BC. While we cannot be certain, I do think that this latter view of the fourth beast referring to the kingdom of the Greeks better fits with the biblical and historical data. But there are good Reformed scholars that disagree and that's all right. All I wanted to do is making note of this. Is These details, while they seem tedious, it makes a difference for how we see our faith in life now. If you have the dispensationalist view that this is mainly referring to a time in the future when Roman kingdom will be revived and ten kings come up and the Antichrist, that doesn't have that much to do with us in the here and now. Where I think actually what Daniel in the New Testament wants us to do is always be aware of the satanic powers where at work through the prince and powers of the air, through the governmental forces of this earth, and through any means that Satan can use. So I think the Reformed view, whether it's that of Rome or Greece, is a helpful way to look at this text. So that is why I bring this up to you, not to bore you with details. "...the eyes and the mouth of the little horn have been taken to note, to note both the covetousness, his eyes, and blasphemy, his mouth, respectively, of this king, this little horn which will arise." A description which does fit well with Antiochus' Epiphanes, as we'll see later. Whether it's based, though, this kingdom on his pompous pride or his actual power, Daniel says that this king or this kingdom seemed to be greater than its companions." In any case, Daniel continues to describe how this all relates to God's people, saying in verses 21 through 22, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now we get to the part which really disturbed Daniel. This horn made war on the saints of the Most High, Now, don't get confused with a a Roman Catholic understanding of saints as those who have achieved a greater level of saintliness and holiness. No, when it refers to the saints of the Most High, this text is referring to the holy people of God, those who are a part of his covenant community. It refers to all the people of God. Do not be confused by that. This is why Daniel was alarmed. More war is coming on God's people. Yet he says that this war and suffering has an end point, saying, Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Whether or not you take this as Rome or Antiochus and the Greeks, this episode, this picture, and I think Antiochus is a good picture of of what satanic powers look like working through a governmental force. So I give you these ideas, and I'm going to give you more of what he did, because he is at least a good type of the kind of thing that Satan uses through governmental powers. And in that sense, he can be a type of the Antichrist, of uh, Satan working in this way. Notice that in verse 19, Daniel requests more information about the fourth beast. He requests this information, but he spends four verses himself describing the beast before he hears the interpretation. It's almost like Daniel is word spilling. He can't control himself trying to understand what this means. We need to understand why Daniel reacts this way. He has been in Babylon, as we've noted, for over 60 years. As we'll see in chapter 9, he's been counting down the days of when Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years that Babylonian captivity will be ended and Israel will be restored. Judah will be restored. Up to this point in Daniel, the dreams and visions have been about judgment coming on all the nations, right? It's been about judgment on the nations with God's kingdom having the final victory. That's what the vision of the statue meant. That's what the vision of the great tree meant meant. Now, Daniel himself, though, receives a dream and visions, which, yes, include judgment on the nations and final victory for God's people, but it also predicts coming war and suffering after the Babylonian captivity. This is what has Daniel distressed yet he needs to take comfort in the fact that God does set a limit on war and suffering for his people, and he will give them ultimate victory. The experience and expectation of war and suffering is and has always been a reality to the saints of the Most High God, the people of God. And it's no different for us today. We, too, Experience and have the expectation of suffering. This is why our Savior said to us on earth, if you would follow me, take up your cross and follow me. That makes you a disciple of me that you follow in the path that I have tread. But this is why God gives us his word, to give us encouragement and hope in the experience and expectation of suffering. I understand that much of what we have been talking about in Daniel, it can feel tedious and tangential at times, but I hope you are beginning to see how important this book is. We can have our in-house reform debates, but what I want you to take away from this sermon and take away from this sermon series is this, that Jesus Christ, and his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, is the conquering king. In a real sense, he has already conquered his and our enemies. He has defeated his and our enemies on the cross, and we wait for him to come again in glory, even as we profess in the Nicene Creed, to receive us into the fullness of his kingdom, which has no end. That's what you need to take away from the book of Daniel. Amid all the sufferings that we have in exile, Jesus Christ has conquered, and in him we have conquered, and we await for the return of our king. This brings us to our third and last point. We have just considered the fourth king. Now let us look at the final kingdom. Daniel, having made his request to the angel in verse 19, and having described the vision of the fourth beast at length in verses 19 through 22, In verses 23 through 28, he is finally ready to hear the interpretation which the angel gives. So we read in verses 23 through 24. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of his kingdom... Ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. Here the angel focuses on the fourth beast, the heart of Daniel's concern. Again it is described as different from all the kingdoms that have gone before, and says that it will devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it pieces. Again, this is a good description of Alexander's swift military campaign, which in no time at all had conquered the earth, Hellenizing it in his wake and making customs different from the kingdoms that were before it. Again, he describes the ten kings or kingdoms which will come from it, perhaps referring to those ten independent states of the Greek kingdom, and refers to another king coming up who puts down three before which might have been Antiochus Epiphanes' father setting up the kingdom for him. All of this Daniel had pretty much already summarized, right? But now the angel adds more detail to the little horn's reign, which is what Daniel is really concerned with. Verse 25 states, And he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and the law. It is said here that the little horn will speak against the Most High, referring to blasphemy, even as we said that mouth represents. Antiochus IV was named Epiphanes, which means something like the illustrious or God manifest. Indeed, a blasphemous name entitled to take. It is said also that this little horn will wear out the saints of the Most High, In his reign, Antiochus was a great persecutor of the people of God, making a decree which forbid certain Jewish customs, actually all Jewish customs, even circumcision, that the parents and the child would be hung and killed if they did this act. In accordance with this, it's said that the little horn will think to change times and laws. Again, Antiochus forbid the celebration of the Sabbath and other Jewish festivals seeking to Hellenize Jewish culture. At the end of verse 25, the angel says, And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. This designation is really significant in biblical theology, and it means a lot in dispensational theology. But to really answer it, we're going to wait to discuss this until chapter 9, because that's when it really is a better time to focus on it. But suffice to say, I don't believe that this is a literal, quantitative amount of time, three and a half years but I think this is qualitative time, speaking about a set limit in which God will allow his people to suffer, but will bring that to end, At times, times, a half time. But we'll talk about that later. In accordance with this view, though, verse 26 states, But the courts shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end whereas God's people will be wearied and persecuted. Yet this is under God's sovereign hand and in accordance with his timing, and it has a set limit. Despite the blasphemy of the little horn, his dominion and his kingdom shall be taken away, and he himself will be consumed and destroyed to the uttermost. As for the people of God, the angel says, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve him and obey him. Weariness, suffering, persecution are not the final words for the people of God. In fact, when all the kingdoms of this earth and their pomp and pride are destroyed, the people of God shall receive the final kingdom. A kingdom which endures forever, forever, and ever. Notice how the verse shifts from the plural, people of the saints of the Most High, to the third person singular. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is the heir of all the nations, even as we saw earlier in Daniel chapter 7 that he the one like a son of man ascends and receives dominion but in his grace even as we prayed earlier we are granted the rights and the privileges of the sons of god that in christ we are adopted sons and daughters of christ of god christ as our elder brother and we receive and share in his inheritance by his grace we reign together with christ by faith and union with him That is why we can switch from the the plural of the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and He will be served and worship. We, as united to Him, will still worship and serve Him along with all the nations of this earth. But it's the great privilege of being united to Him that we share in His inheritance. But even with this glorious news of expectation, Daniel 7 ends on a somber note for Daniel. Verse 28 states, Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Despite, or rather because of the angelic interpretation, Daniel is greatly alarmed and his face turns pale. This reminds one of Belshazzar, whose face turned pale when he saw the handwriting on the wall. But Daniel also notes that I kept the matter in my heart. This reminds one of Psalm 73, when he was having beastly thoughts before the Lord, and when he did not know how to interpret the prosperity of the wicked, he said, If I would have spoke thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your people. But then he came to understand the Lord's ways. It also reminds us of Mary, who heard all these things from angelic things and saw the miracles that Jesus was doing. It said that while she didn't understand these things, she kept them in her heart. It's a good principle for us as the people of God, as we're struggling to not understand God's word, that we think upon it, that we meditate on it, we come on to him to receive further understanding of his word. At this point, we might be wondering, what is it that has Daniel so upset Why is he greatly alarmed? We just heard that we have the eternal kingdom, which is forever, forever, and ever. Why is he so alarmed and disturbed? Why does he say, this is the end of the matter? But as for me, I was alarmed, and his face turned pale. You see, Daniel was living on the other side of the cross before our Lord and Savior had come. From his perspective... And from the perspective of the many of the prophecies of the Old Testament, it at times seemed as if judgment on in, on God's enemies and instantaneous victory of God's people and the inheritance of the kingdom, all of this happened at once. That's what it looks like when you're looking at the mountain peaks of prophecy. They look like they're together from far away, but when you get close, you see those mountains are far apart. This is is the difficulty which Jesus' Jewish contemporaries had. And even his disciples, remember, his disciples asked him, now is this the time that you restore the fortunes to Israel? And what's Jesus say? That's not for you to concern, but you have a task. Go and make disciples. But Jesus' enemies even mocked him in this way. He did not come with great words of boasting on a war horse, but he came meek and lowly, riding on a donkey. As he hung dying on the cross, his enemies mocked him, saying, If you're the Son of God, come down now, save yourself, and we'll believe in you. Little did they know that while he hung on the cross, he was both bringing victory to his people and judgment on all those who will not finally bow their knee and believe in him. Daniel was trying to come to grips with what we call the overlap of the ages. Jesus Christ has come and conquered his and our enemies on the cross, inaugurating his kingdom. But he still awaits that time of his second coming when he will consummate his kingdom. And that will be the time of the end. We have to come to grips with this same reality too. By the grace of God, we live on the other side of the cross and understand somewhat better God's gracious purposes. As we were looking at this passage, I noted connections to the Greek kingdom and the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, which I think may be the intended kingdom and king. But notice how throughout the angelic interpretation, he's rather vague about the identity of this kingdom. And I think there's something we can learn from this. As Babylon was not the final enemy, so too, Antiochus Epiphanes was not the final enemy, nor the Roman Empire. No. All these enemies, like all the enemies which we will face, from this time of the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, will come and go. And it's Satan who is at work. He is the chief enemy of the people of God, and he merely uses these kingdoms which come and go to persecute the people of God. Ch- Satan is the chief enemy of the people of God's people, and he merely uses kingdoms, economies, and sufferings, plagues, and all these things to persecute the people of God. This is actually how John utilizes John in the book of Revelation, Daniel 7. He uses this imagery of four beasts in chapter 13 and 17, and it's not just one coming after another. It's all four of these beasts put together with ten horns, and the purpose which John is saying, I believe in that text, and many reform That this is an expression of all the kingdoms, all the persecution, which is always and ever facing the people of God through Satan's work, through the empires, through the kings. That Satan is always using these. It's not just looking to an end times final stage, but it's showing us what we face in this world of sin and misery until that time that our Lord Jesus Christ comes. And perhaps there will be a final stage of intense persecution, but that is not for certain. The kind of satanic opposition to the kingdom of God is something that we are to expect throughout this overlap of the ages between the first and second coming of Christ. But far from despair, God's word calls us to hope because we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. This passage both holds out a warning and a promise. Sinners such as we are, we should be really thankful that things didn't turn out like Daniel thought, that judgment and salvation happened at once. Instead, Jesus came but once to face judgment, and he'll come again to serve out judgment. But in this time, God gives us a chance to repent. In this time, God is not slow, as some people consider slowness. God is patient for our salvation. Each day that we have is another opportunity to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' death on the cross is the guarantee of God's just judgment. There's only two options. Either He bears this judgment for you, or you bear it yourself. I ask that you would call on the Lord Jesus Christ to repent of your sins and to look to Him as your Savior. But for those of us who do believe, Jesus says, Fear not. I have overcome the world. And the author of Hebrews says to us, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And all the saints of God say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and mercy and truth which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have saved us from our bestial natures that you have made us alive together in Christ. I pray for all of us here that we would receive this message, and we thank you that we live on this side of the cross, that we can see your purpose which alarmed Daniel and made him perplexed. Lord, I thank you that he wrote this down and that he kept this in his heart, and that you in the fullness of time have revealed your purposes, and they are not alarming as he thought, but they are for our salvation and they are of your grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you came once to bear sins, to be an offering once for all, to bear for the many. We thank you too, Lord Jesus, that you'll come a second time, not to deal with sin, which you have already dealt with, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for you. Lord Jesus, we are eagerly waiting for you. We feel the, the experience of suffering. We feel pain. We feel anxiety, and we just... Lord, look to you. But even so, as we traverse the streets of Babylon, as we face the persecution which is out there through the world, the flesh, and the devil, we pray that you would keep us faithful to you, and we pray that you would anchor our hope in heaven where Christ, who is our life, is. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. We talked about the overlap of the ages which this text teaches us about, how the Lord Jesus Christ has come once to offer Himself a sacrifice for sins, for the deliverance of, of people, many people, for which He shed His blood, and which His body was broken. But we also expect a time when our Lord Jesus Christ will come again, not to deal with the sins which He has already nailed to His cross. Our record of debt is gone in Him, but He will come to deliver us from this present evil age, to bring us into that consummate kingdom, where righteousness reigns, to bring us into that heavenly Jerusalem where no unclean thing will enter. And that includes us, because we will be clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. Perhaps that concept of the overlapping of the ages can sound confusing. But here's a picture of it. The Lord's Supper. This picture is both His death for us and for His salvation. It pictures His body broken for us, And it pictures his blood shed for us. But this is also a heavenly table. It reaches up to our king of kings is seated, and he's feeding us. As Pastor Joel often reminds us, it's as if his heavenly banquet table extends down to us. So this is both a meal that shows us of his first coming and what he did for us, but it also gives us the hope of heaven. It gives us that joy that right now we just taste that even in this world of sin and misery but one day all sin, all misery all experience of suffering and expectation of suffering will be gone as we worship the Lamb as we have fellowship with the triune God that is what this meal represents Christ's victory on the cross and Christ's ultimate victory as he comes again, the inauguration of the kingdom and its consummation that is what he sets before us each week to remind us that we are His and that we are united to Him and that there is more to this world than what it seems to offer us, but Jesus Christ offers us Himself. That being said, as we have been repeating this meal, it is for those who are members of this kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, those for whom He has died and who are believing in the sufficiency of that sacrifice for them and for their salvation. It is for those who have bended their knees to Christ, those who have been baptized, who are members of a Bible-believing church, who profess their faith before the elders in the congregation, those who are actively submitting to the discipline, the instruction of the church, those who are repenting of their sins and are trusting and confessing the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and as their sufficient sacrifice, as their sufficient mediator. That is who this meal is for. And if that describes you, sinner though you be, weak as you be, this meal is for you, often like Daniel, we can be perplexed, we can be alarmed, but the Lord Jesus says, Be still, I am the Lord, receive my blessing. If you have not been to your knee to Christ, if you have not been baptized, if you are not a member of a faithful church, if you are not actively submitting to the discipline and instruction of the people that God has placed over you, if you are not repenting your sins or looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, This meal is not for you at this time. I would just ask that you would let these elements pass by. But at the same time, this day, and even in this meal, Jesus Christ is being freely offered to you in the gospel. He is saying to you, his spirit is saying to you, and his bride, the church, is saying to you, come, eat of this bread and life. Come, drink of this milk without price. Drink of this water of life, and you'll never thirst again. Let the elements pass, but drink of the water of life by faith. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. But for all of us who are um, trusting in Christ, we look to this meal as spiritual nourishment to our soul. So we go to the Lord Jesus and we ask him to bless these ordinary elements of wine and bread for our spiritual nourishment by his Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that you are king. We profess that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and we look to you on your throne at the right hand of the Father. And we thank you for your coming the first time to deal with sin, to be an offering for the sins of many. And Lord, we look forward to that time when you come again, not to deal with sin, but to deliver us. Lord Jesus Christ, we look for that day when all knees will bow and every tongue confess, even as we know that all nations, all the kings of this earth are being made your footstool. So we pray, King Jesus, that you would even help us more and more to bow our knees and to bow our hearts in humility at your glorious sacrifice for us. And we pray that we rely more and more on your intercession for us. We pray that by your sanction and by the power of your spirit that you would set aside these ordinary elements, which will remain such, but that you would use them to make us more and more like you, that you would feed us from the bread of heaven, that we would drink of the waters of life. We pray that you would use these means to build us up. We pray that even by your Spirit, that you would raise us up into the courts of heaven now where where we have fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would do all these things for your glory, and we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.